Smartcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As the holidays approach, you're probably goal setting for 2022, and perhaps starting your own podcast is on that list. Over the last year or so, I've had friends, colleagues, and connections reach out to me about podcasting with questions around how to start a show, what tools I use for E2, how to tackle things like editing, production, distribution, and so much more. Look, starting a podcast really isn't complicated, so I created a step-by-step guide to show people how to do it. It's called the Pop-Up Podcast. It's designed to be a simple guide for professional podcast creation to help companies and creators like you start and scale a podcast in just a few weeks. We cover everything. So if you or your company is interested in launching a quality podcast, go to e2coursehub.com. That's e2coursehub.com. And we'll see you there. Hey, listeners, are you looking to monetize your craft? I know many of you out there are independent creators, publishers, educators, and of course, podcasters. If you're looking to monetize your passion, you have to check out memberful.com. Used by the biggest creators online, memberful is providing best-in-class membership software for entrepreneurs and creators and has everything you need to run a successful and scalable membership program. In other words, memberful allows you to build sustainable recurring revenue by selling memberships to your audience. You can send paid email newsletters directly through the platform, for example, without needing to connect to a third-party email provider. You can also publish your paid newsletter to a memberful hosted members-only website, putting your brand front and center. And most importantly, you retain full control and ownership of your audience. Setup is super simple, so get started today at memberful.com. That's memberful.com and start earning. This is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, the podcast where we speak to all kinds of amazing founders and creators doing great things in business and beyond. Today, we are rewinding back to one of the most popular episodes of 2021. It's our conversation with Mark Ange, the co-founder and CEO of Second Closet, now Bolt, Canada's largest valet storage company. Second Closet has raised well over $35 million in financing and is over 600 people strong. In this episode, we talk about the origin story of Second Closet, the first few years of Mark's crazy work schedule, getting punched in the face, both metaphorically and literally, the importance of articulating core values and staying hungry and humble, Mark's views on taking venture money and what comes with it, the shift to fulfillment from consumer storage, and so much more. So with that, let's get right to the show. Here again is Mark Ange. So circa you know, late 2016, beginning of 2017, you are where? And how do you begin thinking about this business? So at the time I'm 21, I'm in my final year of undergrad at U of T where I was getting my Bachelor of Commerce. And I had a full-time offer to join a management consulting firm uh, a month after I graduated. So my headspace is, this is a bit of a breeze. The last year, I'll you know wrap it up quickly, and I've already teed up an offer that you know 
really doesn't have a chance of, of being represented no matter what happens. So I'm, I'm feeling good. I'm in a good place, relatively low stress. In terms of actually thinking about the business, it's funny. It's, it's a business that came to mind a few years before then. And this is when my brother and I moved out of our dad's place and piled into a tiny 500 square foot condo in Liberty Village in Toronto. Um, we had our uh, golden retriever, Riley, uh, at the time. Uh, she was probably a year old, so she was pretty fully grown. Uh, it was a one-bedroom place, uh, had one closet. Uh, David paid the bulk of the monthly cost, so he got the bedroom, and I was uh, banished to the couch. You know, affectionately, it's a, it's an Ikea sofa, and then there's a tie into this later. Now, you're probably wondering, where'd you put everything else and all your other clothes? So this is where the name Second Closet actually comes from. I was longing for a second closet and needed somewhere to put all of our, our all of our belongings. Living in Toronto, we have the, the pleasure and the misfortune of having to have multiple wardrobes depending on uh, the time of year. And so not only did we have a lot of stuff, we had some physical things and wanted to, to store it but there just wasn't a really good storage option. So I started to ideate around what it would look like, how what it would take to actually start something like this to provide that level of convenience to the customer and to myself primarily, and um, realized that I would need a lot more capital than I was you know, prepared to spend at the time. So instead, what I did was I started to build you know, a website and I decided to actually manufacture uh, and sell micro brand watches. Then, you know, fast forward three years, we were hitting the international student market. My headspace was pretty clear. And after having done a couple of smaller businesses, I felt pretty confident to um, support the international student market with uh, summer storage. And it was just meant to be a side gig, something that I did for fun. I managed to architect a partnership that made sense at the time and was going to offer summer storage for students. And so that's how we launched on April 12th of 2017. You know, the site was put together and we launched second closet into the student market with extreme success. Uh-huh. So you turned down the consulting gig? I didn't, I had to rescind my offer uh, two weeks before I was supposed to start full-time because we raised money a day before I was supposed to start full-time and I was kind of forecasting that, that would happen. So I, I went on a bit of a, a limb and, and rescinded that offer with enough notice that I felt was appropriate. Funny enough, the managing partners were apparently making bets on how long I would stick around. I think they all lost because I don't think any of them bet that I would not start. So you raise money. Are you pre-revenue at this point? No, it's the funny thing is that we generated around 12K of monthly recurring revenue in the first week and a half, mm. um, probably about 20K by the second week. And no, so we very much had revenue going into that round. So it, it's probably what helped us accelerate and close it so quickly. It just seems like this incredible pilot story of a young entrepreneur with limited ex experience that, that gets backed early. And then what happens? Like what's going through your head? Are you running this thing out of your Liberty Village apartment? Yeah, it's actually, I'm, I'm running out of a, a, a tiny uh, bedroom with virtually no windows uh, just off of campus because I had moved out actually into a smaller place that was close to, close to class. You know, it's funny. It's that, it's that kind of old, uh, old fallacy. It's like, how do you actually get experience without getting experience? It's, hey, we want five years of experience in like this realm and, and these are entry-level jobs. Um, I think the same thing with entrepreneurship. I think folks have that grit and that execution stamina and, and that just needs to be deployed and, and tested for once. I did have a little bit of experience with that watch company where, you know, I con you know, conceived designs, I sought manufacturers overseas, imported them and then shipped them into 40 countries. And I took basically 250 bucks and scaled that to a couple hundred thousand in uh, annual revenue. And, you know, then I stopped because I didn't have capital. 
people to continue to buy the inventory is super expensive, but it was a profitable business. So instead, what I did was I took those profits and put them into the stock market and just made a portfolio that would pay me dividends to help cover uh, my living expenses. So I probably should have raised money for for that company, but I just wasn't in that headspace, Adam, and I wasn't experienced in that. But from an execution perspective, I've always been a, a bit of a self teacher. So um, if it, I can read up on it, I can speak to people about it. I can learn it and I have a pretty good memory. So I'll, I'll be able to kind of house it and deploy it later. And when we started Second Closet, that was super helpful because I was able to put together all of our ad campaigns, all of our marketing material, stitch it all together, develop a campaign that made sense, launch it. And with like 500 bucks, we really got great, great scale out of it. When you say you set up all the marketing, were you doing all the media buying yourself on Facebook and some of these other channels or were you outsourcing that? What were you doing? Yeah, so I, I launched uh, and created those campaigns myself on, on Google, on Facebook, Instagram, et cetera, and was able to kind of create the right target audience. Um, kind of, I thought that it would make sense to target the postal codes for which these residences were, were built on. And, you know, through that, we were able to get really good efficiency on spend, a really high frequency. So people were seeing our ads quite a bit. And that then resulted in them um, you know, signing up and we were very, very cheeky. We had nothing to lose. So we were being probably a little bit arguably unprofessional and we could probably be sued for it today, but we were using competitors, names and logos and ads and coming up with like cheeky lines of why we're better. Um, and that caught students attention, but we had nothing to lose. And so, uh, it was a big, big swing and a big hit, but, um, you know, if we did that today, it probably wouldn't, uh, it would probably wouldn't make too much sense for us. Who were the competitors at that point? It's a company called store your dorm. Um, they, you know, they would charge and they still charge an egregious amount for summer storage, like to store a box over the summer, it costs you like 80 bucks. And, and we compared it would be like six bucks a month. So, um, it, it was, I think we offered a much better solution to students, which is why we, we grew so quickly. So, uh, so fast. Where does the interest or passion into horology come from? So, <laughs> sorry. So I actually if you rewind the clock further. Um, started working in my my dad's business when I was 12, doing general labor on construction sites. He's he's a real estate developer and property uh, owner, and grew up to then manage these like multi million dollar uh, developments along with my brother. And we would uh, basically build houses and from scratch, demolish them, uh, architect new ones, and uh, and erect them and then sell them. Um, and my dad was into watches. I got into watches as a result, so I got a nice one. My friends were like, "Oh my god, we want to get in a nice watch as well," but there's nothing out there. So I put together sort of all the really nice component parts of a watch, like a really nice dial with like melted glass, uh, you know, a, a crystal uh, lens, a nice leather band, et cetera. And then like designed a watch that I thought my friends would want. And and then, you know, to I guess to our credit, like it, it, it blew up and did quite well and we kept selling out of them. But uh, the interest in neurology comes from, I guess, uh, my dad and his interest in watches. Let's continue. So what's David's role at that time? Um, you're, you're handling marketing and or are you guys just... Are you both generalists at this point, handling whatever is coming your way? I had started the business um, by developing the website with a developer I managed to find in India of all places, paid him 1200 bucks CAD, and we were working on the website for about eight months before we launched. And that was just myself independently. And come January of 2017, I thought, let's pull a team together to help finesse this and work on this and, and make it a bit better and more polished. So we brought on like two technical co-founders. Um, and then my brother joined as an extension of, of myself and and someone else that was working in a consulting firm at the time. And so we sort of formed the founding team, the five of us. And we um, we you know 
built the website up better. We were the ones that broke into dorm rooms and uh, post flyers in conspicuous areas throughout the whole building, particularly in washrooms where we thought we'd have a captive audience in front of urinals and inside of stalls. So uh, we did that uh, together as a group, which was uh, which was a lot of fun. And uh, we sort of had, you know, divided it based on like business ops and then like tech. You mentioned in an earlier exchange we had that you had this feeling of getting punched in the face as an entrepreneur. Why do you say that? Was there a point early on that you guys took it on the chin? So I think, you know, when you think about second clause in the business, we have not only a marketing, a customer experience, a sales and like all those rhythms to worry about, but then we have a physical operation and people's belongings. And, you know, if we had an amazing amount of success in a marketing campaign, that's just not a matter of like spinning up more servers. That's a matter of more trucks, more people. And, you know, for the first three years, literally 18 hour days, seven days a week and couldn't, couldn't be happier, but it's a lot of work. And there's so many different curveballs that we've had to deal with and solve over time. Like I always <laughs> tell the team, like you do get your MBA 10 times over by starting a business. And then fast forward to recently, I physically actually got punched in the face. You get, you get punched in the face for real. This happened about a year ago, uh, like just recently. Um, so we obviously, as you build a business, there's a lot of curveballs get thrown your way. I compare those two being punched in the face and you need to just deal with them and move on. Didn't actually think that that would physically happen one day. Unbeknownst to me, there was a, um, a warehouse associate being let go, which are unfortunate realities of, of a business. Um, and we deal with, uh, you know, all sorts of, all sorts of folks. So that was my tale of physically being punched in the face and along with all the figurative examples. Oh my God. So sucker punched by an employee on the way out. You got on camera. Yeah, oh my God. You bet. That is so, staying on my phone. <laughs> it's this, this is going to make my next question less interesting, but uh, I was going to ask you about, about challenges and moments as, as you've grown from four employees to now more than 600, both at head office and in these various warehousing and, and distribution centers, and also how the working environment has changed um, given the pandemic. Yeah, great, great question. So, I mean, unpacking that and, and taking it from the top, I think scaling from four to five, 600 has been, um, I mean, it's been quick. It's been over four years and we have uh, our field operations teams and warehouse operations teams, and we have our typical SaaS sort of corporate roles and responsibilities. We were lucky that we had three co-founders in three distinct areas of the business. Heinrich, who took care of technology and product and did it exceptionally well and does that exceptionally well. David, who owned operations and myself, who owned customer experience, sales, marketing, and all that. Those are growth, growth drivers. So we were able to probably grow faster, quicker with less of the back office rigidity that you would expect of a company that's growing this quickly. And I think startups are a shit show anyway. Um, and you build things in flight and things break and that's fine. But, you know, we are only now tripling down on our people and operations teams. But I think the most difficult thing with a fast growing company is that, you know, I think of talent in like three waves, like people that are agents of chaos and can build in the midst of fires. And then you've got people that help put out those fires and start to build process. And you have people that start to live in those processes. And when you go through that curve really quickly and you go through it in different stages and different departments, it's an interesting imbalance that you have to deal with. And we've always just tried to take care of it with direct attention from ourselves as the founding team. But 
you know, really, I think we could have probably grown even faster if we had people that own that from start to finish. And the toughest thing in, in that landscape is, is moving on from talent that uh, just isn't good for the business anymore. Because those three phases might be three different cohorts of people. And, and you need to make those hard choices as, as a leader of a business. And I think um, as first-time founders, that is probably not as well understood. And that's probably the hardest part about growing a company so quick, so fast, is those tough choices that you need to make around people. You know, how things have changed. I mean, we've always been a, um, you know, multi-site operation as we scaled past Toronto. So, you know, we had even in Toronto multi-sites that had small teams and subcultures on each of those, on each of those islands, if you will. And so we got pretty comfortable managing that pretty quickly. And we would just try to add our dose and add our physical presence and our voice as much as possible, as frequently as possible to those settings to always make sure that people are driving towards a common, a common goal and a common vision. Only until recently though, Adam, I kind of got around to the need to codify like pillars and values for the business. And I always had this probably naive mindset that people should just know, right? Like in our hiring process, we explain what we're trying to achieve. Uh, we explain what we expect of people. We explain what people can expect of us. But we didn't really codify it until like easy to understand snippets. And we recently have undergone that. And it's actually night and day. I, I wish we did it much sooner because I think that gives people, you know, a beacon of light amidst like a ton of darkness and chaos that can help guide their decision making. So that's something that if I were to do it over again, I would probably have installed sooner. But, you know, I guess it's better late than never. And it's, it's certainly being well received today. Mm -hmm. So let's unpack that a little bit. So when you say you've codified the pillars and values now, what are those pillars and values and how do you articulate it to the team? Yeah, it's funny because this is a whole process in and of itself. I wrestled with this because I think I, you know, founders and people that are in positions of, of influence and power often, I think, will overthink and over-engineer their decisions because like, oh my God, this is going to impact so many different people. So I definitely overthought it to start. And it, I spun my wheels and it took me a minute to actually get this out. Then I just said, okay, what is my decision-making matrix? Who do I think about? What do I think about? How, does, how do I guide my own decisions? Because that's really, I think, what the team is yearning for is decision-making criteria to stay in line with the business's values at its core. And so I just took it back to basics. I realized that the three values that I'm going to put on paper today can change and be you know, added to tomorrow. And that's fine. Um, but I had these like false barriers and false guide rails that I built for myself that I had to strip away. So what I ended up basically putting on paper was was three things. The first being to lead by example and simple enough to understand. But if I was fortunate enough to be able to execute what someone was going to execute, um, to what degree and to what extent would I do it and just embody that? And if you see that something needs to be done, do it. Have a bit of a founder mentality, lead by example pave the way where one hasn't been done already. The second is to be solutions oriented. In our business, particularly in logistics, things go wrong. And it's really easy to point out inefficiencies and problems. But the harder thing is to bring forward solutions. And I know that's probably a typical startup one, but changing that mindset of like, you know, challenges versus opportunities really does actually influence how people think about things and how they look at the state of the world that we currently are in. And the final one is to stay hungry and stay humble. And that's one that probably mostly speaks to me and how I like to, to think about things is that we are extremely ambitious as a team and as a, you know, as a group and as a company, and we want to be the best. But I think oftentimes you hear people become victims of their own success. And that's when they start to say, oh, that customer's too small, or that's not a big enough issue for me to like deal with and things like that. And that narrative, I think, is very dangerous and very cancerous. And the 
kind of term to stay hungry and stay humble to me means let's keep fighting for for more and let's you know strive to be the best and be the biggest um, but let's stay grounded and let's understand that you know who are we doing this for what were the origin stories why are we doing it and it's ultimately um, you know in the name of driving value to our customers and and to those that we're able to serve and we can't forget that and that's any company big or small so um, how does that manifest in terms of the operations? Like when you look at roles and responsibilities of your team, do you sort of expect that nothing is below anyone's pay grade? And what I mean by that is, you know, if shit needs to get done in a warehouse, um, will you, for example, jump in, roll up your sleeves and start packing boxes or storing goods? Absolutely. If shit needs to get done on the road, I'll, ho- I'll be the first to hop in a truck and execute deliveries on a weekend to, to support. And I think it's that level of, I say that I will do that. And I actually then physically go do that. That ensures that this is not like just like a facade or something that like a people team spun up and put on paper to try to, you know, get the team rallied. Um, I think that's one thing that our, our teams appreciate about us is that I'm a very hands-on um, founder and so is Heinrich. So absolutely. And, and I do expect that of the rest of my team mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and everyone's aware of that. So we, we do our part, we play our position, but if ever someone in the business needs support, we should be there to support them. You talk a lot about creating alignment across a fast growing organization. Do you think that this is a great way to do it? You know, remove those barriers, staying hungry, staying humble, that sort of thing. Totally. I think that that in combination with other things like regular update calls, town halls, um, you know, demo days and things like that are, are all important. I think that when we just go through those rhythms for the sake of going through those rhythms and we don't tie it back to a cohesive message. That's where things become a little bit too fluffy for my liking. It's yes, we can like demo this product, but like let's also overlay on top of it. How does this new feature help enhance what we're trying to do for the customer, for the team, and so on? And I think that that's where you need to have alignment at the top, and the tone at the top needs to then constantly preach those things and like recognize that like people are going to fumble. Like certainly, some people just point out the problem; they don't bring solutions to the table, and that's fine. It's an opportunity to highlight that our expectation is that you think about that next time. And those, you know, conversations are ones that are actually more impactful because those are the conversations that stick with people, I find, is those calibration chats and, you know, what can I do better? What am I not doing? The start, stop, continue stuff. Th- those are the ones that actually stick with people and, and they remember for, uh, for a long time. Mm-hmm. So we talked about David, but you just mentioned Heindrich. So how did you guys meet? So Heindrich was introduced to me um, by a mutual friend. Um, they overlapped in engineering. And I was on the hunt for a technical co-founder and was just casually introduced to, to Heindrich. <laughs> we always joke about this. We were originally meant to just build a mobile app to do all this. And so Heindrich's official title for like two and a half years was head of mobile development. But yeah, that, that was his role. It's Ironically, we haven't put out a mobile app for the consumer, um, but we built a lot of mobile apps internally. Um, but I was introduced to him uh, through a friend, I think. He was working at a startup at the time and had a full-time offer in product management. Um, so he, he would be a very technical product manager and he, he, he does uh, develop and write code. Uh, but I think what he liked about us was that we had our shit together. We had a very clear go-to-market plan. We had like a very clear way to penetrate the market. And the startup he was working with at the time casually just was kind of just going through the startup motions that you, know, you might read about, you might listen to on one of your, your podcasts, but didn't really have an underlying reason of being and uh, mission. And so I think he gravitated towards that. And that was the big deciding factor for him to join the team officially. Mm-hmm. 
Speaking of strategies, you've said in the past that a sales first strategy is a winning one. So what do you mean by this? And as you look south at the valuations of tech companies in the Valley, for example, you know, extreme valuations are multiples and they're nowhere near profitable. Are, are you suggesting a pure top line focus is the way to go here? I'm a economics guy and I, I like to kind of think of things in, in their very most basic form. And if you think of just like supply and demand and really dig into that in any business, I think it can shed a lot of light on, on what people are actually building and how they're going about doing that. So, you know, on the one hand, you have a startup that's going to supply the market with something. On the other hand, you have the market, which is going to, you know, uh, have some level of demand for that product or not. And then you have a bunch of negative and positive externalities. And so venture capital, I think, is a positive externality for businesses that allow them to punch above their weight class for only so long. The market needs to latch onto that company and then take it from there. You can only prop something up with venture capital money for so long. The music does stop. When I say a sales first strategy is a winning one, I don't mean blindly sell anything, right? We could do a lot of things with our infrastructure that would generate revenue, but would it make sense? Great example is we could start doing house moves. We have trucks, we have people, we could start moving you from A to B, but that's a one-off execution and that's actually not what we're trying to build as a business. So that, that's bad sales. I think a concentrated sales strategy that's like well-architected with a good go-to-market rhythm is a winning strategy because then you're going to set yourself up to have conversations with prospects that tell you, yes, I like your product. No, I don't like your product. Here's why. And then you take that and you feed it back to product and engineering. You make revisions. You go back to market. It's part of the finding product market fit. I think some startups do that in, you know, under four walls and a roof. And they do that without talking to the customer in a buying uh, rhythm. Because a lot of companies I see, particularly in software, go to market and say, hey, use our product for free and give us feedback but they're not having to open up their wallet. And I think that is a pretty big distinction between a company that's got like tons of potential to be a multi-billion dollar SaaS business and one that doesn't. And when you have the prospect open up their wallet and provide feedback, I think that's the most valuable feedback that you can get. So punching above your weight class in terms of um, bringing on venture. So you guys just recently announced that you secured an additional 20 million in venture funding, bringing your total to 35 million raised to date. Do you feel like this allows you to punch above your weight class? Do you feel more hungry, more humble? Uh, do you feel additional stress as you take on this additional capital? How are you thinking about it? I, I think the capital serves it serves as oxygen, right? It's, it's finite. And we are trying to push the business forward and we have objectives that we want to achieve with it. But they're very similar objectives to what we had before. So the stress levels and the burden is, is no different than it was the day before we raised that money. Mm-hmm. Um, the goals are the same and, and our mission is the same. Um, I think that's just a, a sign of, you know, our, our partners and, and new partners alike voting in confidence that they believe in us and they believe in what we're accomplishing and they're, they're financing our growth. I think that's the, that's the difference, right? Like our top line is growing like so quickly that it outpaces, you know, cash flow and what we have to deploy to actually meet and grow up to that. I think that as a, you know, business that generates pretty strong cash flow, we're able to take on that money and deploy it more consciously because we we understand that a dollar out brings us X in and we're consciously investing at HQ, you know, X amount of dollars on a monthly basis to continue the growth. So, so yeah, I, I feel like it does allow us to punch above our weight class because it's helping us get to that next stage. 
but always having profitability insight and always having the ability to pull those levers to, to make that happen. And you've paused consumer self-storage at this point to focus on providing warehousing delivery and supply chain services to retailers selling uh, direct to consumer, which makes complete sense given the pandemic has accelerated the shift to e-com. When did you guys start to think about this shift? Was this pre-pandemic? So uh, very early on in this conversation, I said that I would come back to the selling watches example. And this is probably a good time to do that. So the reality is that we were actually working on fulfillment two years ago. And we had software that was being built and being deployed. We were working with some direct-to-consumer companies that sold on you know, online um, uh, e-commerce engines. We were natively integrating with those engines and receiving their orders, pickpacking and shipping their product. And, and that was like two years before uh, today, which was you know, a whole year before the pandemic started. Obviously, the timing at which we've come out and said all this is uh, creates a coincidence, but we saw that this was going to be the best way to drive a ton of value and, and really disrupt another industry that we had already built all the infrastructure up to do. And you know, if you take a step back and you think about the consumer storage business, we essentially built a 3PL for consumer stuff, right? If you wanted to store a bike or a box, we could have it inventoried on site, put into the back of a truck, brought to a warehouse, stored in our uh, secure warehousing, pulled off that shelf and brought back to you at that address or another of your choosing. And so we built a third-party logistics company for consumers. And we had businesses that were starting to leverage us to move their assets around and move their inventory around, unbeknownst to us. They just happened to have dozens of addresses in their portal. And when we were kind of doing deep dives on, on new customers and how customers were using us, we found that this was you know, a pretty recurring use case. And so we kept it pretty quiet as we built the business because we wanted to do it without any noise and we wanted to do it covertly. So we were very conscious of who we took on, who we worked with, and we did that for the past two years. And over last year during the pandemic, it really blew up because we had all the infrastructure in place to support Canadian companies with a massive shift towards e-commerce sales. And so that's what we did. And when I talk about the watch example, I had to source a 3PL uh, back when I was building that business in 2014. And it, it was an interesting experience. And that gave me a lot of interesting experiences to draw on as we build our e-commerce and fulfillment engine today to make sure that it's everything but the things that I, I didn't like and it's all the positives and then some. So, you know, we, we had experience before the pandemic. I had experience even before that on the buy side of this, uh, the service. And so all that kind of culminated in, and translated to a lot of, uh, a lot of success. Who is... Who are one of the first companies, like when, when you mentioned you're moving product around sort of covertly for a few of these more established companies and brands, I think I read something a long time ago that Ikea was one of those companies. Um, is that true? Is that not true? Who else were you working for? So in the very early days, we did a lot of um, reverse logistics and uh, direct logistics for like digitally native companies. So think like box mattress companies. There was a high-end retailer that we worked with in Yorkville to help move the retail displays around. And there were a lot of stagers that we worked with to help store their assets and move them around as well. So um, those are the first sort of three kind of big cohorts of, of companies that we worked with. Um, and then we started to actually work with uh, brands that would store a lot of finished product with us that were they were selling online on like Shopify and things like that. And we would pick, pack and ship it for them thereafter. So that was the evolution of the physically moving stuff around with our trucks and our people and storing them in our warehouses. We then moved towards the pick, pack model to help add on and support other areas for that business. And now 
obviously the client portfolio has expanded. You are servicing Chanel, uh, ND, and many others. I would imagine as you continue to bring on more big established brands, incumbents in the logistics space take notice. Who do you count as your competition now and what aspects of your value prop do you think you need to exploit in order for you to differentiate? So logistics is a really old, old business. And it only got a lot of attention this past year because it was under such immense pressure and there's so much demand for it. And so the market took notice, but things has been around for decades and decades and decades. And a lot of our companies that, um, that we come up against that are, that are competitors have been around for half a century or, or more. And so these guys are extremely old school. Their approach is old school. The rigidity is super, um, you know, super strong and they don't really have a customer first approach. Whereas as a new company that's grown up in, in our century, we are a customer first business, a technology first business, and we are trying to drive value in every possible way and every possible interaction. And I think that's a DNA thing. Like I can, I can point to our technology being much better, much faster. I can point to our execution being better than, than anyone else when you put it up you know, side by side against on time and in full rates, NPS, we're crushing it. But it's a DNA thing at the end of the day. We are hiring similar people in the similar uh, labor and talent pool. We have the same types of trucks. We have the same types of warehouses, but it's a technology and a DNA thing that has like interwoven to become this, this force. And that's a hard thing to replicate. It's also a hard thing to articulate because you think, okay, well, I can just build that. Just provide me with some capital and I'll go to, I'll go to town and I'll do it. But it's a lot of, a lot of building blocks along the way that need to go right. And it's probably 70 different things that have come together to make what Second Closet is today. And it's a, a customer first and technology first enterprise that you know really is trying to change the, the industry and, and bring a better customer experience forward. And so that, that's how we differentiate and that's what we try to press into. And then we just need to live up to it. And I think for time and time again, we've proven to customers and companies that we, we make big promises and we keep them. And so that's contributing to our success today. Do you think it's important to have a VC on the other side of the table that shares these values or operates with this mindset. So said another way, do you look at your investors, your venture capitalists as customer first VCs, technology first VCs? Do you think about it in that way? I think that it's incumbent on me to explain to the team that what we do and what we focus on is driving long-term value. The types of folks that we have in the business are not quick flippers. They don't want to be in and out in two, three years and just you know flip it to the public market or to a private equity shop. They're aligned to building a, a good, solid business. And what makes a business valuable is cash flow. And what allows you to drive recurring and reliable cash flow is a promise to a customer that's consistently met. And we've been able to build that, but we've had to explain how we're building that. And I'd be lying to say if I said that there wasn't tension or... Um, conversations around, can we grow faster sooner and bigger sooner? And certainly could, but it would come at the expense of our execution and certain things need to fall into place. We're now in a state where we can pour gasoline on this fire and just see it erupt in, in a really positive way. But that wasn't always the case. And we need to make sure that there was alignment to support that. I think if you think of Whitecap and, and the team over there, they've been extremely supportive of that because they've deeply understood our business's operational rhythms and our sales rhythms. and They've been patient, but we've also grown really quickly. So, I mean, we've three extra revenue for the past two years in a row, and this year we're slated to four X. So I talk about being patient, but 
that's also in the light of us having grown revenue substantially. So it's probably all relative. You know, it just it's ensuring that there's alignment in terms of what we're building and keep them focused on that. I think you can definitely get some impatient VCs and that comes down to like fund dynamics. How mature is the fund? When is it slated to kind of like wind up, wind down rather and uh, those sorts of things, which, you know, today I, those are questions that I ask as, as we enter new relationships is uh, it's important. And, and that's that's their pressure in their business. They have a return and a hurdle rate they need to provide investors and their LPs. And you need to understand those dynamics deeply to understand if you're actually a good fit for each other. If there's a founder listening to this who is interested in determining whether or not a VC would be a good fit for them, how would you advise? One end of the spectrum, you can say, okay, the VC is completely hands-off. They write a check they're barely involved. There's barely any support along the way versus uh, the other end of the spectrum, um, you know, the active investor side of things. They write a check. They're all over you. Um, is there a middle ground here? How do you look at it? So, I mean, I think of a business as like a living, breathing organism, right? So let's like compare it to a human body. When you're taking on outside capital, you're essentially, you know, you're, you're doing a, a transplant of an organ and that body can reject that organ or it can accept it and it can keep on keep on living. And that comes down to like getting the right VC or the right capital at the right time. There's a reason why most people start with angels. They're probably entrepreneurs, they're founders. They can help you in a softer sense with sort of people, culture, thinking about how to like scale the business. And that, that's that stage. Then you've got series A, series B and onwards. And there's different investors that focus on different areas uh, and stages of a business. And the reason why Series C investors are not looking at uh, seed investments is because they're just set up to support in different ways. And you do need different types of capital at different points in your journey because it all helps with the maturation of the business. But you need to go through those things chronologically. I would say that try to like deeply understand what your mission is to start because taking on capital, particularly in an angel level, the angel will often try to come in and provide direction that they feel is like the, you know, the right answer always. Um, you need to have a strong sense of where you're going and how you're getting there. And it's okay that like some things are not worked out. That's normal. But you need to have that like North Star and that vision to drive everyone towards to drive that alignment. Otherwise, someone else is going to write the playbook and write your, you know, write your roadmap. And so you need to make sure that there's alignment around what where you're hoping to take the business and, and how you're going to get there. Their capital is a major driver to that. So it's important, obviously, to get that alignment up front. Um, but it, it should be clear. Did you get that process right from the beginning? So our, our seed investor group, um, Michael Hyatt, Mike Cowie, they have been super, super supportive and they've really understood how I think about business and how I think about Second Closet and its growth path. And they've participated in every single one of our rounds to date and they've been extremely supportive. I think that we are super lucky to have gotten that right. That was my first time raising capital and I sort of went with the flow and just explained what I was hoping to achieve and that managed to get them on board. But I wasn't consciously thinking about who am I bringing on? Why are they joining? Super overly. Michael was a huge help in actually paving that way. So I got lucky in, in, in a lot of senses. Um, if I were to do it over, I'd be a lot more conscious. But fortunately, it turned out, I think, in, in the way that we, we would have wanted it to turn out. What is next? Like, what is the next chapter for you? you you've got this additional funding. I would imagine you're expanding your Canadian footprint. Are you thinking about the U.S. at all? Like, what is the next chapter? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the business is in a great spot in that a lot of those kinks operationally, um, product-wise, have all been worked out. And we've got line of sight to, to a really strong growth path. Naturally, 
our existing client base with operations in the U.S. is, is pulling us there. Um, there's some key cities that they want us in yesterday. And that that's a huge vote of confidence in the sense that we'd be dis- displacing the party that's already servicing in there because they feel like we can do it better. And, and that's important. So we have a lot of conviction in a U.S. strategy. We're going deep on Canada, ramping our team, ramping our executive group. And I'd be lying if I said that we weren't intending to launch in the U.S. Uh, in short order. So that is definitely on the roadmap. And that's the plan. Secondcloset.com for more on what you guys are doing. Um, it's an incredible story. It's exciting. This has been awesome, Mark. Thanks so much for the time. Yeah, thank you, Adam. I appreciate you having me. That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening. E2 is brought to you by Scriberbase. Build your subscription business and thrive. More at scriberbase.com. Want to start your own podcast in 2022? Visit e2coursehub.com for more info on our step-by-step guide to bring your show to market. If you like what you heard today, don't forget to download and subscribe wherever you get your audio. You can also visit us at glow.fm forward slash e2 to become a supporter. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Are you a fan of classic cinema or a young person who wants to discover the best films of all time? Do these legendary movies still hold up? On the Generation Film Podcast, two guys who grew up when movies dominated the culture share a great film with a panel of young movie lovers and see how it plays for today's generation. We discuss changes in storytelling styles, representation, the making of each film, its initial reception, and how its meaning has changed over the years. Join us as we explore cinema classics across generations on Generation Film. Hey there, I'm DC. I host the Rock Podcast, Back to the Arena, the Interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock fan like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, the Interviews. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.